homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Today we're looking at the Chankama Sutta. This is Angut Nikaya Chapter 5, Discourse Number 29, and this is on walking meditation and its benefits. Chankama is a Pali word that translates as the act of walking or walking about, walking up and down, or walking back and forth. And in the context of the Buddha's teaching, it's about contemplating the Dhamma while we're doing the walking back and forth. It can also be translated as a raised walkway or terrace, or also a place for walking up and down. And as we know, Chankama, or walking, is one of the four postures the Buddha talks about for meditation or development in the Chara Sutta and in other discourses as well. Whether we are sitting, standing, walking or lying down, those are the four postures. So walking meditation is one of the postures we can frequently practice and develop. And there are many benefits, as we shall see. Now, what we'll cover in this session is we'll look into evidence of walking meditation being something regularly practiced by the Buddha and also previous Buddhas and noble Sangha disciples of the Buddha. When we read the suttas, it's surprising how often we gloss over that the Sangha is actually practicing walking meditation. We'll also look at how the Buddha connects walking meditation with how to overcome the hindrance of dullness and drowsiness and how it promotes wakefulness. And then we'll also look at some of the Buddha's instructions in selected suttas specifically on walking meditation. And then the last thing is we'll look at these five benefits of walking meditation. And here we'll see how walking meditation can be very supportive towards our Dhamma practice, particularly with regard to our health, our ability in areas of endurance and effort, and to maintain concentration. So let's begin. Let's first look at some accounts of past Buddhas who practice walking meditation or walking back and forth. And we get these from the Therapadana, which are legends of the Theras or senior monks. The first one is from the Amandapala Dayaka Therapadana, so number 531. And it's interesting to read these accounts because it's usually before these bearers in one of their past births is about to make an offering to the Buddha at the time. But it's a very joyful thing to read out. The first one makes reference to Padmutra Buddha, and it says, The victor, Padmutra, was a master of everything. Rising up from meditation, the world leader walked back and forth. Having, having taken a kari load, I was carrying fruit just then. I saw the Buddha, stainless one, the great sage, walking back and forth. And then the second account comes from the Kesara Pupia Therapadana, so number 366. And this makes reference to Vesabu Buddha. And it says, I saw the spotless one, Buddha, great famed one, walking back and forth. At that time, I, having placed three Kesara flowers on my head, I approached him, the Sang Buddha, and did puja to Vesabu. And then the third account is from Magadatika Therapadana, so number 178. And this makes reference to Anomadasi Buddha. And it says, Anomadasi, blessed one, the biped lord, the bull of men, bringing happiness to the world, walked back and forth across the sky, happy with pleasure in mind. Worshipping, I scattered flowers. The flowers stayed on his raised feet, also on the top of his head. So you can see in all three accounts, offerings were made of either fruit or flowers. 
And we have three different accounts of Padamotra Buddha, Vesabhu Buddha, and Anomadasi Buddha doing walking meditation or walking back and forth. We can now look at selected accounts of Gautama Buddha practicing walking meditation. And there's actually quite a few accounts or references in the Tipitika. We'll just look at three examples here. The first is when Anathapindika is about to meet the Buddha for the first time. And this is in the Sudatta Sutta, Sanyutinikai, chapter 10, discourse number 8. And it says, Then the householder Anathapindika approached the Blessed One in the cool grove. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, having risen at the first flush of dawn, was walking back and forth in the open. The Blessed One saw Anathapindika coming in the distance. He descended from the walking path, sat down in the seat that was prepared, and said to the householder Anathapindika, Come, Sudatta. So that's the first example where the Buddha would arise early in the morning and do walking meditation. And the second is from the Supati Sutta, Sangyutikai, chapter 4, discourse number 7. And this one says, On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha, in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Then, when the night was fading, the Blessed One, having spent much of the night walking back and forth in the open, washed his feet, entering his dwelling, entered his dwelling, and lay down on his right side in the lion's posture, with one leg overlapping the other, mindful and clearly comprehending, having attended to the idea of rising. So this one's actually quite interesting because it reminds us of the Sekhapadipada Sutta, Majjhimikai Discourse number 53, and specifically the development of wakefulness, Jagriyang in Pali, where Venerable Ananda gives this account about the three watches of the night. And you can see in this account, the Buddha has been doing walking meditation in the open for most of the night, and then he changes posture to lying down, but is still mindful with clear comprehension. The Buddha lays down with the clear intent of arising. So there is wakefulness both in walking and lying down. This passage supports what is taught to the Sakyans, the lay people, in the Sekhapadipada Sutta. And then the third one is from the Aganya Sutta, so longer discourse, Tikkanikaya discourse number 27. And it says, Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was staying near Savati at the mansion of Migara's mother in the East Park. And at that time, Vaseta and Bharadaja were living among the monks, hoping to become monks themselves, on probation in hopes of being ordained. And in the evening, the Blessed One rose from his secluded meditation and came out of the mansion and started walking back and forth in its shade. So you can see here, there are different accounts at different times of the day and night where Gautama Buddha was practicing walking meditation. So this helps us to see that changing posture was something that was commonly practiced by the Buddha. And this was also to develop energy, wakefulness, and to be mindful and clearly comprehending and also further along we'll see for concentration, right concentration. Now these accounts are all very inspiring to us in terms of the importance of walking meditations. We can include that. And we can now look at the Sangha practicing walking meditation. There are actually many suttas where a lay supporter or a Brahmin, a king or a monk has traveled far to see the Buddha and the Sangha. And when they arrive, they see the Sangha practicing walking meditation. 
as I said before, when we read the suttas, we don't tend to notice that's what the Buddha or the Sangha is doing. We often miss that and go straight into what the discourse is about. So when you start to read the suttas and see that, it's actually quite surprising. So here are three examples. The first one is from Bahia Sutta. This is Udana, discourse, uh, chapter 1, discourse number 10. Now on that occasion, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open. Bahi approached them and said, Venerable sirs, where is he living now, the Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened? I want to see the Blessed One, accomplished and fully enlightened. And they answered, He has entered an inhabited area for alms food, Bahi. So we can see Bahi has come in search of the Buddha, and when he arrives, he sees the bhikkhus are practicing walking meditation. And then the second one is from Maratajaniya Sutta, so Majjhunikaya Discourse number 50. And it says, thus have I heard, on one occasion, the venerable Mahamogalana was living in the Baga country at Sumsa, uh, Sumsumma Rajiriya, uh, in the Besakala Grove, the Deer Park. Now on that occasion, venerable Mahamogalana was walking up and down in the open. And so that's venerable Mahamogalana doing walking meditation. And then the third one is from Dhammachetya Sutta, Majjhminikaya Discourse number 89. And it says, now at that time, the Brahmin, Gautamukha, had arrived at Benares on some business. Then as he was going for a walk, he went to the Kemia Mango Grove. Now on that occasion, Venerable Udena was walking up and down in the open. Gautamukha approached and exchanged greetings with him. So in this case, Venerable Udena was walking up and down. So those are the three examples of the Sangha practicing walking meditation. Again, very inspiring in terms of making effort, cultivating wakefulness, and maintaining vigilance towards the practice. So we can see that walking meditation is mentioned very clearly with regards to developing and being intent on wakefulness. And as we said earlier, this is Jagriyang in Pali. Wakefulness is highlighted a number of times in the suttas as part of the Seika's mode of practice. As learners and trainees, we are encouraged to become accomplished in wakefulness when we develop the Noble Eightfold Path. One particular sutta is the Aparihanya Sutta, and this is Anguttanikaya Chapter 4, Discourse Number 37, which talks about a bhikkhu who possesses four qualities, that is, accomplished in a virtuous behavior, sila sampano, guards the doors of the sense faculties, indriya sugutatavaro, observes moderation in eating, bojaniya metanyu, and is intent on wakefulness, jagriyang anuyuto. And possessing these qualities is incapable of decline and is in the vicinity of nibbana. And then another sutta reference is the Apanaka Sutta, Anguttanikaya chapter 3, discourse number 16. A bhikkhu who possesses these three qualities, so guards the doors to the sense faculties, moderate in eating, intent on wakefulness, is practicing the unmistaken way and has laid the groundwork for the destruction of the taints. So it is confirmed in these two discourses the importance of developing and having intent towards wakefulness among these other important uh, types of conduct. Uh, it's because it means that we won't decline, that we're on the right path to destroy the taints, and therefore we're in the vicinity of Nibbana. So it's very powerful stuff. Now, where we find the definition for intent on wakefulness is from the Seka Patipada Sutta that we mentioned briefly before. And if you've been following this channel, you know we had a separate Dhamma session on wakefulness as part of the series on the trainee's mode of progress. So in the Sekapati Sutta, Venerable Ananda stated, 
and how is a bhikkhu intent on wakefulness? Here during the day, while walking back and forth and sitting, a bhikkhu purifies his mind of obstructive quality. In the first watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, he purifies his mind of obstructive qualities. In the middle watch of the night, he lies down on the right side in the lion's posture, with one foot overlapping the other, mindful and clearly comprehending, after noting in his mind the idea of rising. After rising in the last watch of the night, while walking back and forth and sitting, he purifies his mind of obstructive qualities. It is in this way that a bhikkhu's intent on wakefulness. The important point to pick up here is that a seeker or trainee, a learner, who is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, intent on wakefulness, changes posture throughout the day and night while purifying the mind of obstructive qualities or unskilled states. So in any posture, we don't want defilements, hindrances, or the 10 unskilled states to take hold. These are all rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion, as we know and would take us away from the Noble Eightfold Path. And when lying down in particular, one must ensure mindfulness and clear comprehension is established and have a clear intention about getting up. And this is indicative of not wanting to slacken, nor indulge in dullness and drowsiness, which increases delusion and again takes us away from the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, one may think that what has been defined is more suitable to monastics, but remember that Venerable Ananda gave this teaching in the Sekhapuripada Sutta to Mahanama and the Sakyans, so they were lay people and householders. So Venerable Ananda describes the upper level of what it takes to become accomplished in wakefulness. So that doesn't mean lay practitioners cannot start leaning in that direction. Naturally, there will be challenges due to work and other household duties and responsibilities, time constraints. However, what is important is to include the changing of postures, particularly walking meditation, while purifying the mind into one's spiritual practice. In terms of walking meditation, it's important to understand that <clears throat> when we change postures in order to both develop and maintain wakefulness, we can also develop and maintain skilled states of the mind. And all of this, as we highlighted just before, supports non-decline, developing the right path, towards destroying the taints and being in the vicinity of Nibbana. And there are also other benefits or advantages to walking meditation that we'll look at a little bit further along. One other point to make about changing postures, which is very important, is that we contemplate Dukkha carefully. The Buddha has said that when we change postures, it is due to Dukkha, suffering, pain. Due to this, uh, this body that we have, it is not possible for us to maintain one posture for long. We would experience physical pain or discomfort and change posture in order to alleviate that. And in effect, this is seeking sukha, seeking pleasure from the new change in posture. But then the pain or discomfort would arise again and we would change posture again and on and on it goes. And as we age, this worsens. It's very important to reflect wisely about this dukkha-sukha relationships, so pain-pleasure, pain-pleasure, and establish right view and know we cannot permanently fix this. So this is also something one can contemplate while doing walking meditation. So this is why we developed the Noble Eightfold Path. It's to realize Nibbana, the way out of this whole predicament. In the Pachalayamana Sutta, this is Anguttara Nikaya Chapter 7, Discourse 61, 
It gives the Buddha's advice to Venerable Mahamogalana before he attained the fruit of Arahantship. And in this advice, Venerable Mahamogalana had been struggling with drowsiness and kept nodding off. And we've referenced this sutta a number of times. And so as we know, the Buddha came and gave a sequence of eight instructions that one would use, one after the other, if the previous one didn't work, to abandon and overcome drowsiness. So in other words, different kinds of medicine to treat the sickness in the mind. It was the second last one of the eight that the Buddha recommended that was walking meditation. And the Buddha's words to Venerable Mahamogalana were, but if you cannot abandon drowsiness in such a way, so the previous seven, you should undertake the exercise of walking back and forth, perceiving what is behind you and what is in front, with your sense faculties drawn in and your mind collected. By such means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. Now, it's good to know that walking meditation can be used to overcome the hindrance of dullness and drowsiness. In Pali, this is Dinamitta, which as we know from the Ahara Sutta, this is in Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter 46, discourse number 51, it arises from discontent, so arati, lethargy, which is handi in Pali, lazy stretching or slouching, so vijambita, drowsiness after meal, so bata samado, sluggishness of the mind, so chetas or linatang. From the Buddha's words in this Pachalayamana Sutta, we do get some instruction on walking meditation. There are three things the Buddha or two things that the Buddha highlights. So we perceive what is behind and what is in front. So this means we have an awareness of the walking path we have set, ensuring there's nothing blocking or causing problems for us to walk back and forth. And the second one is our senses, sense faculties are drawn in and our mind is collected. What we see from this particular sutta and from a few more on walking meditation, which we'll go through, is that the Buddha wasn't prescriptive about the length of the walking path we said, nor about the setting. It can be inside or outside. Though we do know that many of the discourses, the Buddha and the Sangha, of course, naturally, would be often walking out in the open. The Buddha was also not prescriptive about the speed of walking back and forth, nor about whether to swing one's arms or to hold them in a particular way, nor about putting attention to our feet or how we lift and place our feet, nor about the movement itself nor about the sensations in the body. Much of this is what we would call kaya vijnana, bodily consciousness associated with sensation. But if you study the suttas as we are doing today, the Buddha didn't expound on this at all. These may have been things that were done for walking meditation uh, that were practiced prior to the Buddha's teaching. So it is up to us, the speed, the length of the walkway, how we place our hands or arms, whatever is conducive to focusing on the Dhamma and practicing it. What will become clear is there is something very distinctive about how the Buddha teaches walking meditation and how it aligns with how we meditate in other postures. And so we need to challenge ourselves. If we think Buddha's walking meditation is simply about focusing on the length, the speed, the arms, the feet, the movement, the sensations, we really need to uh, look at that. Now, in this Pachalayamana Sutta, when it comes to walking meditation, the Buddha was mainly concerned with ensuring our sense faculties are drawn in, so they're restrained, and our mind is collected, so not scattered grasping external objects. So let's revisit what this means and why it is important. 
So one of the questions that is commonly asked is around what makes walking meditation in Buddhist teaching different from taking a quiet walk in the park or going for a solitary hike? Now, what we can see from the Pachalayamana Sutta that we read out just before is that there is a clear distinction. When you think about the reference to senses drawn in and the mind collected, we're clearly talking about sense restraint, guarding the doors to the sense faculty so we can dwell vigilantly. What we find when we go for a stroll or a walk or a hike, usually there is no conscious intention to restrain the sense faculties. We may have a particular destination in mind or we're being guided by external objects. So this means we would allow our sense faculties to go outwards, to take delight in the sight, sounds, odors, taste, tactile sensation, and hence the mental phenomena. We're happy to take in things through our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, going towards things we find pleasing and so on. And so when we go on a hike, our head might be swiveling around, looking at the landscape, allowing things to catch our eye, or following our nose with a smell or a sound with our ear and so on, and going to investigate. Effectively, this means we would still be allowing the desire for sensual pleasures to activate, and this would lead to thoughts of sensual desire and more. So consciousness would keep establishing on form, and we would be what the Buddha calls dwelling negligently. The outing may be fun and adventurous or relaxing and easeful, but either way, they are not what the Buddha had in mind for walking meditation. When the Buddha described having our senses faculties drawn in, so restrained, and our mind collected, so not scattered towards grasping external objects, it's the opposite of what is described when going for a walk or a stroll or a hike. Instead of dwelling negligently, so Pamada Vihari, in walking meditation, the Buddha encourages us to dwell vigilantly, so Apamada Vihari. This is very much around sense restraint and guarding the doors to the sense faculties because we don't want to pollute the mind with greed, hatred, and delusion and veer off from the Noble Eightfold Path. And this, as we know, is well explained in the Pamada Vihari Sutta, Sanyutta Nikaya, chapter 35, discourse number 97. And we've previously examined this in detail in our session on safeguarding the mind by dwelling with vigilance. And there are other suttas as well, but the Pamada Vihari Sutta is particularly helpful. In the case of dwelling neg negligently, where we don't have sense restraint, then the mind becomes polluted or soiled. So these are sense objects cognizable through any of the sense bases. So there's no gladness in the mind. When there's no gladness in the mind, there's no rapture. When there's no rapture, the body does not become tranquil. When the body doesn't become tranquil, we dwell in pain or suffering. And when we suffer, the mind does not become concentrated. Instead, it is restless or unsettled. And so when the mind is not concentrated, we cannot see things as they actually are. And that's how we dwell negligently. Now on this slide, this is how we dwell vigilantly so that we have sense restraint. The mind is not polluted, not sold in. We're not taking things in through the sense bases. So there is gladness in the mind. When there's gladness, there's rapture. When there's rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, we dwell in happiness. And when the mind is happy, the mind can easily concentrate and become collected. And we see things as they actually are. And that's how we dwell vigilantly. So what we can see here is if we are doing walking meditation, it's important to have sense restraint. So that means we don't go out with the eye towards form. 
We don't go out with the ear towards sounds. We don't go out with the nose towards odors or fragrances. We don't go out with the tongue towards tastes. We don't go out with the body towards physical sensations or tangible things. And we don't go out with the mind towards ideas or mental objects that are drawn in through these other faculties. And the last one regarding the mind and mental objects gets further clarified in the next few sutta references. But what is clear is we don't indulge in our stories and ideas that are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. So for example, in doing walking meditation, we don't revisit the argument at work or an issue we had with someone at the bank and get angry and you know increase the greed, hatred and delusion in the mind. Or we don't gossip about an old friend and reflect on that something we've heard from another friend. We rein the mind in, knowing that those thoughts are unskillful. Now, if we are meditating on the Vatupama Sutta while we're doing walking meditation, then that can be different. We might be using those examples in order to cleanse the mind and abandon the un unskilled states. That's different. So sense restraint becomes something that is very, very important when it comes to walking meditation. When you think about it, what the Buddha is saying is that we don't walk back and forth, letting our senses run amok, nor do we allow senses to get enticed towards external objects. So we guard our senses, knowing that there is real danger if we don't. So a good pointer is always the simile of the tortoise, that it retracts its head and limbs when it senses danger. So in this way, practicing walking meditation out in the open can be very good for training sense restraint. For householders, there is not, often not an option for walking meditation in a quiet place. But that shouldn't preclude from doing walking meditation. In fact, a less than ideal place can often be helpful towards making more effort to overcome any lack of sense restraint. And one would feel good after ma having made that effort to train oneself and persist. For example, if we hear a sound, we stay guarded, not interested in those sounds. Even if we slip and follow that sound, we bring it back once we catch it. Or if we smell freshly cooked food, we don't follow that smell and automatically give up our meditation. Likewise, if there's a color or shape that catches our peripheral vision, we don't go and look at it. We just give it up without any interest towards it and stay on the task of walking meditation. So if one trains in this manner over time, it will seep into how we are in daily life outside of formal meditation. And that can be really helpful. So instead of abhinandati, abhiwadati, ajrosayatiti, that is, as we know, taking delight, welcoming, and re remaining holding to it, so these forms, we nabhinandati, nabhiwadati, ajrosayatiti, we don't take delight, don't welcome, and don't remain holding to those things. So this is how, when we practice walking meditation correctly, our faculties remain calm, we remain peaceful, and we're no longer burning with greed, hatred, and delusion. And as you can see, this is very similar to Santindrio in the Karaniya Metta Sutta meditation. And we establish right concentration. Let's now examine two more suttas where the Buddha gives instructions on walking med meditation. Both expand on what has been stated in the previous sutta, the Pachalayamana Sutta. We can first look at the Chara Sutta. This is Anguttanikaya chapter 4, discourse number 11. There's also the same teaching in the sayings of the Buddha, and this is Itibhutaka number 110. The Buddha is giving a teaching on meditation or development in any of the four postures. 
and the Buddha states in relation to walking meditation, because if a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a bhikkhu while walking, and he tolerates it, does not abandon it, dispel it, terminate it, and obliterate it, then that bhikkhu is said to be devoid of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously lazy and lacking in energy while walking. And then later on it says, But bhikkhus, if a sensual thought, a thought of ill will, or a thought of harming arises in a bhikkhu while walking, and he does not tolerate it, but abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, and obliterates it, then that bhikkhu is said to be ardent or active, and to fear wrongdoing. He is constantly and continuously energetic and resolute while walking. And this particular teaching is the same in all four postures. So how can we understand this? Well, firstly, if we don't have sense restraint with the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind, unskilled thoughts arise while we're practicing walking meditation. And if we tolerate them, making no effort to get rid of them at all, then the Buddha is saying that we are lazy and lacking in energy. So the Pali words are very clear here and quite forceful. So adivasati, na pajahati, na vinodeti, na bianti karoti, na anabhavangamati. So adivasati means we're tolerating those unskilled thoughts. We're putting up with them, enduring them. So this includes simply observing and even indulging in these kinds of unwholesome things without getting, without removing them. Napajahati means one doesn't abandon, does not give them up or eliminate them, doesn't get rid of them. Navinodeti does not dispel, remove or drive them out. So it's increasing in forceful nature. Nabianti karoti means we don't terminate them. So it means we don't abolish them or even destroy them. And then the last one is Nabhava gamati. So we don't obliterate. We don't cause them to perish or utterly cease. So there's no doubt that the Buddha is saying, get rid of them, destroy them. In no way is he opening the door to observing and letting them be there. And you would ask why? And it's because they will grow and multiply or recur. And we remain rooted in greed, hatred and delusion. And the thing is, the Buddha's path is not about greed, hatred and delusion. That's what we've been cultivating and developing over many lifetimes. And we don't want to keep nourishing these four nutriments as it can lead to suffering by going the wrong ways. So we have to establish this right view and the right intention or thought that follows that we need to cultivate right thought, which is thoughts of renunciation, not ill will and not harm. So that really means the noble or path. So non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion are those roots. So we don't tolerate in any sense unskilled states. The Buddha has used this phrase, so the one about uh, not tolerating them and abandoning them, dispelling them, terminating and obliterating them, or references to both the positive and the negative forms of it in the Gopala Sutta, so this is in Anguttanikaya, also Maha Gopala Sutta, that's the one in Majjhanikaya, and he's also used it in relation to the simile of the quail, so the Latu, Latukiko Opama Sutta, that's also in Majjhanikaya, and also in the Parihana Dhamma Sutta on mastering the six senses. So the key things to understand in any of these teachings is in any posture, if we tolerate and indulge in these unskilled thoughts that arise from our senses without making any effort to eliminate them, then we have not mastered our senses. 
we are increasing in unskilled states, decreasing in the skilled states, and therefore we can expect, expect decline in our practice. So that is not a good thing. Now in this Chara Sutta, the Buddha has stated we're constantly and continuously lazy and lacking in energy. In Pali, this is kusito hina virio. And we are not protected from greed, hatred, and delusion because moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, what we call our protectors on the noble path, have not kicked in. So what we need to do is to have well-established sense restraint so that these unskilled thoughts do not arise. And if they do arise, we don't tolerate them. Instead, we quickly abandon them, quickly dispel, terminate, and obliterate them. In this way, we're constantly and continuously energetic and resolute. So the opposite. And in Pali, this is arada virio pahitato. And we're protected by moral shame and fear of wrongdoing. So we are developing the right path towards mastering our senses. We're decreasing in unskilled states. We're increasing in skilled states. And we're making progress in our practice. So based on this teaching in the Chara Sutta, it's very important to make sure we're doing walking meditation correctly in accordance with these teachings. So knowing what is wholesome versus unwholesome, skilled versus unskilled, is the key to establishing right view. And this is the emphasis when we begin doing walking meditation and while we're doing walking meditation. So we are practicing the Noble Eightfold Path that the other path factors can develop from there. And it is also what helps us to attain path and fruit. And this is highlighted in the Kusambhya Sutta. We would admit transgressions and make sure we remove them. So we may have learned another method of walking meditation in a different tradition or even under the guise of the Buddha's teachings. But whatever the case may be, it's good to ask ourselves whether we are actually being slack or lazy or lacking in energy when we are doing our walking practice or any of the postures for that matter. If so, the Buddha has given us clear instructions here how to correct this. And in the last part of the Chara Sutta, the Buddha reiterates, whether walking or standing, sitting or lying down, one who thinks bad thoughts connected with the household life has entered upon a dire path. And in Pali, this is Kumaka Patipanno. So they've gone the wrong, wrong path. Infatuated by delusive things, such a bhikkhu cannot reach the highest enlightenment. But one who, whether walking, standing, sitting or lying down, has calmed his thoughts. So this last part, vitaka sama yitavana. So this is really, you calm your thoughts through sense restraint, not polluting the senses and the mind, getting rid of the unskilled states, and then you dwell vigilantly, as we saw from the Pamada Vihari Sutta. And delights in the stilling of thought. A bhikkhu such as this can reach the highest enlightenment. So this is our encouragement from the Buddha. The other discourse we can look at is the Sila Sutta. This is the one from Anguttanikaya chapter 4, discourse number 12, so the one immediately after the Chara Sutta. Here the Buddha has stated, because if a bhikkhu has gotten rid of covetousness and ill will while walking, if he has abandoned dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry and doubt, if his energy is aroused without slackening, uh, so this is ara the hoti viriyang and also asalinang. So energetic or strenuous, active, so not sluggish, very upright in the mind. If his mindfulness is established and unmuddled, if his body is tranquil and undisturbed, if his mind is concentrated and one-pointed, then that bhikkhu is said to be ardent and to dread or fear wrongdoing. 
he is constantly and continuously energetic and resolute while walking. So this is similar to the previous Chara Sutta, apart from making specific re reference to getting rid of the five hindrances. And here, instead of sensual desire, the Buddha uses covetousness. But then he also references ill will, dullness and drowsiness, restlessness and worry and doubt. So these are unskilled or unwholesome states that are rooted in greed, greed hatred and delusion. So again, Buddha is emphasizing establishing right view so we can develop the Noble Eightfold Path from there. If we do so, then we arouse energy. We are active, not passive in our efforts, and we're not slacking off. In this way, we're establishing mindfulness, so we're purifying for unskilled states. And that means we're no longer forgetful or muddle-minded. And then the body becomes tranquil, it has cooled, it's no longer excited or burning with greed, hatred, and delusion. And so in this way, the mind becomes concentrated and still. So if we're already practicing walking meditation in this way, we know this pathway is accurate. We get you know, this particular result time and time again, and we will see further along how beneficial it can be to practice and develop walking meditation properly. We've now confirmed how the Buddha has instructed to develop walking meditation. Hopefully we can all improve and adjust whatever it is we may have gotten wrong or confirmed what we are doing that is right. Now we can turn to the five benefits of walking meditation. And as we said, this is from the Chankama Sutta, Nikaya chapter 5, discourse number 29. And it says, because there are these five benefits of walking meditation. What five? One, one becomes capable of journeying. Two, one becomes capable of striving. Three, one is in good health. Four, what one has eaten, drunk, consumed and tasted is properly digested. And five, the concentration attained through walking meditation is long-lasting. These are the five benefits of walking meditation. What we can see from this list of five benefits is the first two relate to endurance and effort, the next two relate to health, and the fifth relates to concentration. And we'll look at each one of them in turn. Although the Buddha doesn't mention in this list of five benefits, I've also found walking meditation to be quite conducive for memorizing the Dhamma, so certain sayings of the Buddha, as well as Sutta meditations, the insight pathways, and also working through Dhamma puzzles or certain aspects of the Dhamma we're trying to understand. There's something inherently conducive about the steady movement and calmness that is developed with walking meditation that can then be applied. The first benefit is stated as one becomes capable of journeys, Adana Kammo in Pali. So let's look at this one first. So Adana can be translated as a long path, time, journey or travel. Kammo in all these cases can be translated as to tolerate, to endure, to forbear, to be patient, to be capable or to be fit for. So one is capable or fit for journeys or travel. So this means in the case of bhikkhus for arms round and for everyone to execute duties and responsibilities, to cover long distances and to travel, to share dhamma and things like that. There's a sense of building up stamina for long journeys or for to tolerating long periods of time. It also gives a sense in the bigger picture of endurance and capacity to stay the course, the dhamma course. 
when we consider this long journey in samsara with no discoverable beginning and having understood some dhamma we wish to develop the noble eightfold path and it becomes apparent we need to be able to endure or bear with the long path towards nibbana and all the challenges that may arise what quite often what we find is we're veering off the noble path or we feel as if we can't endure the challenges along the way so the Buddha is encouraging us to develop walking meditation to help us to build our capacity to endure, to withstand all the challenges and stay the course. So this is another perspective. So it's not just being able to withstand long journeys. The second benefit is stated as one becomes capable of striving or padanakamo in Pali. Now, this benefit aligns with what we previously covered in both Chara Sutta and Sila Sutta, where the Buddha encourages us to be constantly and continuously energetic and resolute while walking, which is Atapi, Otapi, Satatang, Samitang, Aradaviryo, Pahitato in Pali. So let's look at a few more parallel suttas to expand on our understanding a little, because when we link a few of these things up, you can see how this whole pathway, how effort is particularly important, how being capable in striving is quite important. And then you see why walking meditation is also very good for that. So the first sutta to look at is this Anuruddha Mahavitaka Sutta. This is Ankutnikai chapter 8, discourse number 30. And it explains why it is said Dhamma is for one who is energetic. When it was said this Dhamma is for one who is energetic, not for one who is lazy, with reference to what was he said, here a bhikkhu who has aroused energy for abandoning <clears throat> unskillful qualities and acquiring skillful qualities, one has strength, firm in one's efforts, does not put down one's responsibilities with regard to cultivating skillful qualities. Just as, a, as an aside, this passage is actually about the, the good quality of ara the video those last few words about having strength firm in one's efforts does not put down one's responsibilities or shirk responsibilities with regard to cultivating skillful qualities this is mentioned in Sekapatipada Sutta but also in the simile of the citadel or fortress and so this is why when it is said the Dhamma is for one who is energetic not for one who is lazy it is with reference to this that this was said so there's also a separate Dhamma session on Ara, the video of being energetic or resolute or arousing energy in our Trainees Mode of Progress series. Now, as we highlighted earlier, this is to ensure we establish right view. And it's applicable in any posture, not just walking meditation. Now, if we don't do this, then the Buddha would call us lazy and lacking in energy. And when we think about just the idea of energy or effort, virya, and this is also part of striving, then we know it's a power, one of the balas. It's a spiritual faculty, an indriya. It's a base of power. So it's virya, um, idipada. Also, factor of enlightenment, virya, bojanga, as well as sambojanga, as well as part of the four right striving, as we shall see. And therefore, also noble eightfold path, because samma vayama, right effort, is part of that too. So you can see this particular aspect is quite central to developing our practice. More specifically on the four right striving, the sutta reference here is to the Padana suttas, Ankutunikaya chapter 4, discourse number 13, or discourse number four, uh, 69. Now, these are fundamental to developing the Noble Eightfold Path. 
one with right view will certainly develop these as they will certainly help us to eventually destroy the taints. And so far, when we've studied two out of the four doorways to Nibbana or profitable directions, so so far we've done the painful practices, we've applied the first two of the four right striving to develop, develop those meditations. So in the Padana Sutta, the Buddha has said, bhikkhus, there are these four right strivings, what for? One, here a bhikkhu generates desire for the non-arising of unarisen, bad, unwholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. He generates desire for abandoning of arisen, bad, unwholesome states. He makes effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. So that's the second one. The third is he generates desire for the arising of unarisen, wholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. And then the last one, he generates desire for the persistence of arisen wholesome states, for their non-decline, increase, expansion and fulfillment by development. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. These are the four right strivings. Those who strive rightly overcome the realm of Mara. They are unattached, gone beyond fear of birth and death. They are contented, unstirred, having conquered Mara and his mount. Those happy ones have overcome all Namuchi's armies. So when we do walking meditation, if we are developing it in accordance with the Buddha's instructions, as we've gone through so far, then we are actively developing these four right striving. So in very simple terms, preventing unskilled states, unreason unskilled states from arising, abandoning unskilled states that are already there, developing unarisen wholesome states or skilled states, and then the last one protecting arisen skilled states or wholesome states so that they don't decline but increase and expand to fulfillment. And the Buddha also taught about striving by restraint, so sangbara padana, and then also this we've talked of before when we talked about sense restraint, guarding the doors to the sense faculties and living vigilantly. Uh, that's the same thing. And then the second is striving by abandonment, so pahana padana. This is the same as what we went through in the Chara Sutta about abandoning those three kinds of thoughts that are unwholesome or unskillful. Then the third is striving by development, bhavana padana, and striving by protection, anurakana padana. So this is the in the Sangvara Sutta, Anguttara Nikaya, Chapter 4, Discourse Number 14. A lot of these suttas are actually in the Vagga on walking. So we don't need to go over the first two because we've covered them earlier. But the striving by development, this Bhavana Padana, is about developing the seven factors of enlightenment. And in an upcoming Dhamma session, we'll start to look at the Bhojangas. One of the key things is once we have right view, that we establish it, the seven factors of enlightenment help us to protect the mind from getting sick again. And we're able to maintain that right view and the other path factors, which lead us towards Nibbana. And then the striving by protection, Anurakana Padana, is about protecting any excellent object of concentration. And as it says, in this sutta, the Sangvara Sutta, it says the perception of a skeleton, the perception of a worm infect, infected, infested corpse, the perception of a livid corpse, the perception of a festering corpse, the perception of a fissured corpse, and the perception of a bloated corpse. 
So walking meditation aids one's ability to strive in this way. And that is that sense restraint becomes more steady. One improves one's ability to abandon what is unskillful or unwholesome. One becomes more skilled at developing and maintaining the bojangas. And one doesn't allow the mind to sicken as a result of that. And lastly, one is able to protect one's excellent objects of concentration. So the Buddha says at the end of this Sangvara Sutta, that restraint and abandonment, development and protection, these four strivings were taught by the kinsmen of the sun, so the Buddha. By these means, an ardent bhikkhu here can attain the destruction of suffering. So these are all very, very helpful things. So when we know that walking meditation supports that, enables that, then we want to be able to do our walking meditation, include it in our uh, things that we develop. In the Bojanga Sutta, and we've spoken briefly about this before, the Ahara Sutta, Sangyutta Nikaya chapter 46, discourse number 51, and we referenced it earlier in relation to what uh, nourishes dullness and drowsiness. So here, all five hindrances we see are on the unwholesome side, and the factors of enlightenment, the Bojangas, are all on the wholesome side. What we want to do is to denourish the five hindrances and to nourish the Bojangas. And as we highlighted earlier in the Pachalayamana Sutta, walking meditation is certainly one of the medicines for dullness and drowsiness. When the hindrance of dullness and drowsiness comes, particularly after a meal or when we're tired or unhappy, it's too easy to turn on the TV or click through YouTube videos or phone a friend or some or find some kind of other distraction. If we do walking meditation, it activates what denourishes this dullness and drowsiness. And what we need to do is to change our mindset towards something that helps us to overcome unhappiness or tiredness rather than turning to these other distractions. In the sutta, it actually says this ahara sutta, it says, and what because is the denourishment that prevents unarisen dullness and drowsiness from arising and arisen dullness and drowsiness from increasing and expanding? There are because the element of arousal, arambadatu, the element of endeavor, nikama datu. And thirdly, the element of exertion, parakama datu. And frequent wise contemplation is the denourishment that prevents unarisen dullness and drowsiness from arising and arisen dullness and drowsiness from increasing. So when we are developing walking meditation, we wisely contemplate that we are actively arousing energy to go against dullness and drowsiness or any of these hindrances. We're applying strength and persistence with the practice and we're exerting effort with each step to establish and maintain right view. And we're being courageous in the face of whatever challenges or obstructions are coming up for us. So as we can see from various sutta references that we've been through, striving is a fundamental part of the Buddha's noble path. So knowing that walking meditation makes us capable of striving should motivate us to learn walking meditation correctly and develop it really well. So now we'll look at the next two benefits together as they're both associated with physical health and well-being. Uh, number three is one is in good health, so apa, bado in Pali. 
And what one has eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted is properly digested is the fourth, or asitang, pitang, kaitang, saitang, sama, parinang, parinamang, gachati in Pali. Excuse the Pali reading out. Our bodies are of the nature to sicken and also to age. So this is something that we know when we do our reflection. If we are weak or sick, then we know that it becomes a significant impediment towards training and practicing and progressing in Dhamma. So we've looked at the Samaya Sutta before. This is Kaya chapter 5, discourse number 54. And in that Sutta, when we looked at it, the Buddha had stated, if we are sick, overcome by illness, it is an unfavorable occasion for striving. But when we are seldom sick or afflicted, then it is conducive for striving. So as the body ages or sickens, it becomes increasingly important to find ways to sustain the body in relatively good health. And I say relatively because we, we know the body is of the nature to age and sicken. So we can't fully overcome that. It's just relative good health that we're looking at. And this is because we want to be able to continue to practice and progress in Dhamma because this will also support our mental well-being. The Buddha has stated that walking meditation is one of the ways that we maintain relatively good health. And the other way is actually moderation in eating. And we've examined that as part of the trainee's mode of progress based on the Sekhapatipada Sutta. And also, if you read the suttas, the Buddha talks about the consumption of congee or rice porridge because of its digestive health benefits. That's also good and supportive for relatively good health. So let's now look at these two benefits a, a little bit more. Now, when we had our Dhamma session on Jivaka Kumarabhacha, so physician to the Buddha and the Sangha, as one of our role models, if you remember, he advised the Buddha to allow walking paths for saunas and saunas for the monks. Now, this account was given in the um, Vinaya, and it was on the chapter on short topics. And in this particular story, what is important, and it's not just for monastics, but when it comes to our bodies being full of impurities due to the different kinds of meals we consume. So bear that in mind as we read it out. At this time in Vesali, people have arranged a succession of fine meals. After eating the fine food, the monks were often sick, their bodies being full of impurities. Just then, Jivaka Kumarabhacha was in Vesali on some business, and he saw those monks. He went to the Buddha, bowed, sat down and said, at present, sir, there are monks who are often sick, their bodies being full of impurities. It would be good if you would allow walking meditation paths and saunas. In this way, the monks will rarely get sick. The Buddha then instructed, inspired and gladdened him with a teaching, after which Jivaka got up from his seat, bowed, circumambulated the Buddha with his right side toward him and left. Soon afterwards, the Buddha gave a teaching and addressed the monks. I allow walking meditation paths and saunas. And the account goes on to outline the Buddha's allowances for different kinds of walking paths owing to difficulties that came to the monks because they were walking on uneven pathways. So we can see from Jivaka Kumarabhacha's advice, developing regular walking meditation practice means one will really get sick. And that's Buddha's doctor's advice. And there are a number of suttas that list five factors that support striving and yearning for the destruction of taints. And one of the five 
is that one is seldom ill or afflicted, possessing an even digestion that is neither too cool nor too hot, but moderate and suitable for striving. And that appears in uh, two suttas, the Padana Yanga Sutta and also the Kanakatala Sutta. And then the same five factors are also given in the Pathamakatana Sutta, and that's Angutanikaya Chapter 5, Discourse Number 135. And there the Buddha states that if one possesses these five, additionally, one then can yearn for the destruction of the taints. And it's interesting to note that having an even digestion plays an important part in striving and wanting to destroy the taints. Now, if you've been afflicted before or are currently afflicted with poor digestion or something like indigestion, bloating, gastritis, heartburn, or other similar ailments, then you would know how difficult it can be to arouse energy, make effort and strive, let alone have the desire to destroy the taints. So walking meditation helps us to have good or even digestion. And as it says in this Chankama Sutta, whatever we have eaten, drunk, consumed and tasted is properly digested. So for example, rather than sitting or lying down straight after a meal, which we can be prone to do, it's better to do walking meditation. It's a way of not succumbing to dullness and drowsiness as well that comes straight after consuming a meal. So if you decide to lie down after having done the period of walking meditation, at least you've gone beyond that initial dullness and drowsiness. You haven't succumbed to it immediately. And as we already know, moderation in eating also helps to support this. In this way, we can feel good about making effort to strive rather than slacking off. And each person can decide what works for them. But when you see that it also has health benefits, then it's more encouragement towards walking meditation. And the fifth and final benefit of walking meditation is stated as the concentra concentration attained through walking meditation is long lasting. So this is Chankama, Adigato samadhi chiratitiko in Pali. So chiratitiko can also be translated as not just long-lasting but enduring or perpetual. Now, if we're honest, we can develop and maintain concentration usually during our sitting meditation, but outside of that, it usually wobbles or gets completely destroyed. And we're talking about right concentration here, so not mundane concentration that comes with giving full attention to mundane things such as if we're concentrating at work or concentrating to do some kind of sport or that sort of thing. We're not talking about that, but rather we're talking about the steady, unshakable right concentration that comes from contemplating the Buddha's words correctly and being able to penetrate them and to develop the enlightenment factors or the bodhipakya dhammas as part of that when we regularly practice walking meditation. In this way, what happens is we develop wisdom. Now, when you understand what the Buddha has taught about walking meditation, that it is not solely about giving attention to the feet or the sensations as we walk, but rather about wisely contemplating the Dhamma and developing in accordance with the Dhamma, then the whole practice of walking meditation takes on a different dimension. Now, from my own experience, while walking back and forth, this walking meditation, if we keep the mind drawn in, it is possible to attain the jhanas by doing the same sutta meditations we do in sitting in the sitting posture or the standing posture or the lying down posture. 
And while walking back and forth, it is also possible to develop all seven factors of enlightenment. And having developed them, move between them, as Venerable Sariputta has said, like changing clothes. With walking meditation, our eyes remain open but soften, because there is a drawing inwards as part of the sense restraint. However, the experience of concentration while walking can feel more expansive and wide, and the movement enables you to be more fluid with that walking, with that concentration. It's also good to experiment with different inside pathways or sutta meditations and develop them while doing walking meditation. In my own case, I particularly enjoy developing immeasurable loving kindness, the metta apamana while walking. For me, when it's developed correctly by developing those 10 skill states in the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And uh, what happens is when you start to radiate loving kindness with each step, it becomes really, really sublime, really, really, really wonderful. And in terms of training, it's helpful to develop and practice things like the Idipadas, so the four bases of power, the seven factors of enlightenment, the Bojangas, and this becomes a way of becoming more proficient at them, more skilled, because when you develop walking meditation for some time, it, it becomes apparent that you can sustain the right concentration for longer, even coming out of the walking meditation. And this can be very helpful in everyday life. Also being able to activate those different things that we need in order to withstand our external conditions, as, a, as well as from a sharing of Dhamma perspective, if you're interested in sharing Dhamma, then it helps very much in terms of being able to speak the Dhamma, share it, lead Dhamma sessions, and also conduct retreat. And the concentration can be sustained. So this means that the mind is less prone to becoming sick again. So by sick, we mean the wrong view seeps in again. We get corrupted by the perversion. So taking things as suba suka atta nicha, so beauty, pleasure, me and mine and permanency the main one that often sickens us is taking things as mine and so a lot of the hindrances and defilements arise because of that and so when you establish really good concentration both from sitting but also from walking any of the other postures but definitely with walking then we are less prone to quickly become imbued with greed hatred and delusion again and so when you know that, you know, our usual modus operandi is actually greed, hatred and delusion. We lose the right view very, very quickly. So all these benefits of walking meditation are supporting our ultimate goal of realizing complete liberation from this whole mass of suffering. We've now come to the end of our session. Let's have gratitude for the Buddha for all these teachings. We can now share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem. Beruan Saranai. <laughs>